Welcome to the Filipino American Women Project, a podcast show that shares stories and life lessons told by individuals living or have lived in America that are of Filipino descent and identify as female. I'm your host, Jen Amos, a fellow Filipino American woman, and I'm excited for you to join us. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Jen Amos here with the Filipino American Woman Project podcast show. And as always, I have my co-host with me, Nani Dominguez. Nani, welcome back to the show. Hello, everybody. Cool. And we are stoked because we have yet another woman in New York City (laughs) on our show today. I feel like we're like touring the U.S. and right now we're in New York. (laughs) And, um, you know, like we kind of been going back and forth from California and and New York is what I feel like. So uh, so let me go ahead and introduce her. We have uh, Justine Ang Fonte on our show. She calls herself a Filipina feminist and foodie. Justine was born in California. So shout out to Cali Girls and made for NYC. Her advocacy in health education began when she was five, assisting her physician mom with medical missions in Bagabag, Nueva Vizcaya. Her parents founded a math and reading learning center in her father's hometown of Rumblon, Rumblon, where she served as a director of operations. Her second master's research was on sex education in the Philippines. Justine is a teacher in NYC, nationally recognized health education consultant and speaker, and a board of directors of Roots of Health. She is very proud of the sisterhoods that had formed from Ray's Panay and the capacity to honor her parents through artivism. Also, her mom's Lumpia is the best you'll ever have. Justine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jen and Ani. Yeah, it's great to have you. Why don't we start with you sharing? How did you hear about the project and why you chose to be on the show today? I found out about the Filipino American Woman Project via your sister, Josephine Amos. Um, She had approached me about wanting to produce a raised panay. And after that relationship was very much solidified, she told me of your existence and that you might be reaching out. And so I did. <laughs> and you did. And you did. And I'm glad you did. Yes. I actually want to uh, thank Nani. So Nani has been doing a lot of, uh, even though people reach out to me, I don't always have the time to reach out. And so Nani has been really taking the initiative to do that. So thank you, Nani, uh, my amazing co-host for doing yeah. that and reaching out to people and, and coordinating things for me. It's been, it's been a big help for the show. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Well, so this show is really dedicated to individuals who live or have lived in America of Filipino descent that identify as female. Justine, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your family background and why you identify as a Filipino American woman. Sure. My family, let's see, I grew up in California in the Bay Area, and I have one older brother. And the two of us raised fairly differently in terms of our Filipino-ness. My, my brother speaks zero Tagalog. I've had to translate a lot for him, even though I don't even think that I know everything. But I think it was that my parents really instilled a lot more of the culture in me than they did with him. And he's eight years older than me. So after he left for college, I was only in fourth grade. And uh, so I had continued with my parents' trips to the Philippines every single year, either as kind of a little pharmacist or assistant for my mom's medical missions. And that turned into becoming the director of operations for my dad's organization in his hometown of Rumblun. 
to help them with their operations around their math and learning center. So I was going to the Philippines often and honestly, going to predominantly white schools in the Bay Area, I kind of just figured everyone else had their own version of going back to their motherland every Christmas mm-hmm. and being really rooted in that. So it wasn't until I was a lot older that I realized that people didn't really know who they were, what their ancestry was or where they were coming from. And I almost just kind of defaulted to that, the fact that everyone was woke with their ancestry. And, you know, I had a, an alarming culture shock when I realized that that was not the case through little incidents of like the kind of food that I might have been bringing into school that day or friends coming over to my home and seeing or smelling things that were very different than their own homes um, and not understanding why it was so different than the apparent white American experience. Mm. And I kind of just figured, well, don't you do that in like Ireland or you never did that in Germany or, you know, and it just turns out that they didn't even identify even with that ethnicity, but more Mm. so just as a pure white American. Um, And I just felt like everyone kind of had their own version and it just didn't seem like they were that rooted in that. And it wasn't, it didn't really play a dominant part of their, of their childhood. So as I started to realize that I had developed some shame in that my experience not being normal was therefore something I should be embarrassed of. And I really tried hard to assimilate and acculturate as a sixth grader, whether it be trying to defend why like my mom was maybe a lot more conservative in some of like the social landscape with why I couldn't go to dances or go to sleepovers, but how she's a cool mom because sometimes she'll take me to the gap. And isn't that where all of your moms take you? (laughs) See, look how American I am. Or today, like we went to Safeway and bought Lunchables. Isn't that what you always eat? See, I'm just as American as you are. So I had this like very like narrow idea of what it meant to be a child of the US because I had thought earlier on everyone was just as diverse, I guess, as, as I was. But in developing my understanding of my identity, what really actually happened was a friend of mine who I'd played tennis with in um, when I was growing up in competitive um, juniors tennis, she introduced me to this comedian. I think I was in seventh grade and she said like, hey, this guy's really funny. Here's a CD, put it on your CD player and press play. And his name was Rex Navaretti. And oh. I'd never heard of this comedian before, but I pressed play. And one of the tracks that was playing was about him in Daly City going trick-or-treating. And going trick-or-treating in Daly City would have been very different than going to, let's say, Atherton in the Bay Area. Um, and he would go mm-hmm. and ask, you know, for candy. But instead, because it's Daly City and many of the households he was going to were Filipino, they would have their bags out waiting for the candy and then, like, the Tita would open the door and says, oh, one lumpia for you, one lumpia for you, one lumpia for you. <laughs> and that was the first joke that I'd heard from this guy. And I said, oh, my God, somebody else like has a Tita and like has lumpia and made a connection to a, a very American celebrated holiday. And it was just like this life changing experience of like, who is this Rex guy? And how did he get a platform to be on a CD that I could now listen to, even if I've never met him, I thought every Filipino was someone that had to be related to me that I'd already met. Mm. And it really just opened my eyes that like, through comedy, we could really educate people about our other cultures, and not in a way that's necessarily like making fun of the stereotype, but really celebrating and honoring like how different 
how different our lives are and how cool that difference actually can be. So I ended up becoming like his number one fan and went to like any show he was like performing at, whether it was in SoCal when I went to where I went to school or in NorCal and just started really embracing like how beautiful my brownness was because he modeled that. And like, mm. he was like 30 years older than me, but it was just really cool. It was like the first person who wasn't Connie Chung or Chrissy Yamaguchi that showed me what I could potentially be doing is like educating people on like either a theater stage or in a comedic kind of medium that it's good to be different. And here's how mm. fun it can be. And so that's where like how I can answer your, how do you explain that I'm a Filipino um, person today? Because I think before I would just say I'm an American and that's all I am. But I think I can now attach that hyphenated description because of what Rex initially started for me back in seventh grade, where I can now say I am a Filipino American. I would say that I identify as a Filipino American woman today because of how many other women before me and my ancestors who are female and how similar I am to them. Not to say that I had to meet, like fit their box, but I identified a lot with their femininity, with a lot of like maybe the masculine traits that they owned and, and saw as strengths in their femininity. And I, I think because of that connection, I feel right at home being able to say that I identify specifically like how my mom does, how my Lola mm -hmm. does, how my Lola on my dad's side does. And with the Ang Fonte women that are just over at my aunt's house every Thanksgiving. And I'm like, wow, we are all the same, like super loud, super matriarchal and just <laughs> boss ass bosses. So yes. that's why. I love it. I, I mean, from my perspective, I feel like you definitely had a unique experience as a Filipino American woman growing up, having the luxury to go to the Philippines um, every year, as you mentioned, and really be immersed in the culture as opposed to just visiting to visit family. And so, yeah, as you were sharing your story, I was like, wow, that is, that's really awesome. And I think that's amazing how your parents brought you along they were doing and you were able to help them and, and everything. So that that's interesting. And then when you talk about the part where you feel ashamed, that's so unfortunate that that happened. But thanks to Rex, it's like, cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yes, I'm not just American. I'm Filipino American. And so I think that's really, really awesome that you were able to come to that place and really embrace your culture and identity through comedy. I think that's really the first time we've had someone on our show so far, Nani, who can resonate in that that kind of way. So yeah, I mean, I, I also just want to say that I love that your parents did that for you and, and kind of shaped that experience. Because like you mentioned, from a very young age, you were very rooted in your culture and kind of aware of who you were, and even started to look around at your own classmates back here in the States and recognize that they didn't know who they were you know, that something was off. And I think that that right there just states how needed someone like you is in our community, because the common theme that we typically see is, is exactly the opposite of your experience. And it's all of us feeling very disconnected, and not knowledgeable. So I think that you're someone that's very, very needed in our community. And, and thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I also want to say that I feel like, at least from what I know of you and what your work is through Raise Panay, I feel like you really celebrate our culture as opposed to 
my experiences with other Filipino women in the past where I they made me feel guilty for not knowing my culture and not being able to speak Tagalog. But you represent our culture in a very positive way. And so I just want to let you know that that I appreciate that. Like, I don't feel like I'm about to be in trouble because <laughs> because of whatever reason, because I, I don't know enough of being Filipino. <laughs> we are way too diverse for me to tell you exactly what it means to be a Filipino, though. So I know my version through my perspective. Everyone's going to have their own. But I think the common theme is that we identify in that diaspora and that's enough to keep us linked. Yeah, absolutely. And it's my hope that for our listeners to be inspired by this conversation, because I think we all kind of grew up with a certain way of how we we are supposed to be. But then when we start to hear more stories such as yours, we start to realize like, oh, I, I'm really undefined. It just so happens that we share these similar traits, but I could really be whoever I want to be and be proud of my, you know, that I am of Filipino descent, but I am so much more than that. And even being of Filipino descent, it's not like there's certain boxes I have to check off to represent, exactly. you know, just to say that I'm of Filipino descent. <laughs> so I love it. Well, um, with that said, let's go ahead and just fast forward to today, Justine. For people who are meeting you for the first time, why don't you share just a snapshot of your life? Most importantly, what keeps you busy and excited nowadays? I guess I would say two things. Uh, the things that keep me busy are my job. I'm a health educator, and that got me into a role at a independent uh, school in New York City, teaching health education to parents, to faculty members, and to students. So my title is Director of Health and Wellness. I have a team of four of us in our department that I lead, and we're teaching comprehensive health ed from kindergarten through 12th grade. So that definitely helps me to pay the bills. What helps to pay the rent for sure is uh, my side uh, hustle, which is uh, as a consultant and a speaker at schools around the country. And what had happened was in the seven years that I had built this program at the school in New York City, it got a lot of recognition from various schools, from peer schools in the neighborhood to nationwide from conferences that I had presented pieces of health ed too. And as a result of that recognition, schools wanted to start bringing me in to help them build either a similar program or to at least bring me in to be an assembly speaker. The things that I'm usually asked to speak on in an assembly of four to 600 students at once is either on consent, rape culture in the media and or pornography literacy. And mm -hmm. so I have like definitely a repertoire of many things that I, I can talk about or help the school build in their own programming. But those are the three most asked of, of me. And for obvious reasons, uh, before the Me Too movement, that pe the people who weren't getting, you know, the, the stories out in the press were having sexual assault issues in their school environments. And mm. either one of those had to, quote, successfully occur for them to realize, oh, maybe we should do something now about it. But it was always in reaction to already a crisis or a trauma that had already happened. And so at least with the porn literacy quest that I'm getting, they're seeing the impacts of it and not necessarily full on negative sexual health outcomes, but they're finally being a little bit more proactive that maybe we do need to start talking about pornography to our seniors who are leaving next year. And so now some schools are bringing me in for a bunch of different grades, even as low as seventh grade, to be talking about pornography literacy so that it can be a proactive stance and not one that has already led to racialized sexual violence, which is very common in a mm. lot of what we're seeing in pornography. Or 
not having protection being modeled for them or consent being modeled for them or skewed body image issues. And so it's great that I'm now being asked for kind of like a 102 lesson, which tends to be a porn literacy talk. And that helps to really pay the bills and allows me to kind of execute my foodiness because I can now afford to eat at places that maybe I'd normally save for a special occasion. (laughs) Uh, But honestly, and this is not to like say that I'm not fulfilled in those first two ways that are keeping me busy, thing that has really been my my baby and the proudest thing that I've ever done is raise Panay. And and it kind of melded together my Panayness from how I was interrogating that as a kid to my career in health education. And that the raise Panay bit started because of my board membership for Roots of Health, which I like to call as like effectively a Planned Parenthood of the Philippines, but with some slightly different services. But it's the only type of organization that's doing that type of work in the entire country. And because I'm so passionate about my motherland and sex education, it made total sense that I would be involved in an organization like that. And in the process of being a board member there and wanting to do more than fundraisers, that was just like reaching out to friends who could come to a bowling alley and then make their ticket really expensive because then it can go to the Philippines. I wanted to attach their dollars to actual stories of women that are connected somehow to the women that are being served by Mm. Roots of Health. And that's how I had come up with this idea of Raise Panay with J.L. Umipig and uh, Rochelle Perazzo Campo. And so the three of us got together and we're just these like this triad of uplifting love for each other and what has come about from our friendship and our our business partnership has now been three generations of of Race Panay that's raised more than $35,000 for Roots of Health. So that's the thing that I'm most Mm. proud of and and like talking about more than uh, the things that are paying the bills, but there is definitely an intersection between Race Panay and what I'm doing on the everyday at the schools that that I work at. I think that's so awesome. When I think about health ed, when we first started learning it, I think in sixth grade, it was very technical. It was like, okay, here are your body parts. And this is what a penis is. This is what a vagina is. And that's really all I could remember. And I think something about like pads and tampons and stuff like that. A lot of my uh, sex education was really, I had to either learn it on my own or learn it through friends, like going Mm -hmm. to uh, Planned Parenthood. And if anything, from my family, I got a lot of negative sex education. You know, I've mentioned this uh, in in previous episodes on the show already, but I, you know, was a a child of molestation. Um, Whenever I would go to the Philippines, my first cousin would molest me in my sleep. And so a lot of my experiences of like sex education or whatever has been really negative and it's always been a very hard conversation to have even yeah. when i brought it up to my mom she completely uh dismissed me and even shamed me she said why did you let him do that to you mm-hmm. and it's like i was asleep like how is that possible like how is it right. my fault when i was asleep and so i think what you're doing i just want to say like i admire what you're doing i admire how even articulate you are at it because i feel like sex, you know, the word sex is a very sensitive, you know, it's a very sensitive topic. And it's something that uh, I think a lot of us feel 
maybe ashamed to talk about almost ashamed as we are with like our identity, you know, it's mm. almost, it's almost as if like just sex and our identity are, are the same <laughs> in terms yeah. of, in terms of shame. And so it sounds like what you're doing is awesome and unique. And it's, I think it's very refreshing to be speaking with someone such as yourself that is a big advocate for that. So I just, I want to thank you for that. All right. Jen Amos here jumping into the middle of our show as I always do to remind you why this show is possible. So, you know, at the end of every episode, I tend to say, if you didn't catch our guest contact info, don't worry, we'll have those in the show notes. Check them out. I work so hard on them. You're welcome. Well, it's been brought to my attention that our show notes are not as easy to find as I thought, which is why starting summer 2020, the Filipino American Woman Project is proud to be partnering with Captivate, the world's only growth-oriented podcast host. Captivate is created for independent podcasters, designed from day one to help you to focus on audience growth and the expansion of your audio influence. One way that Captivate makes our lives easier as independent podcasters is by taking the guesswork out of making a website for your show. That's right, a website for your show. So listeners, starting summer 2020, finding our show notes will be so much easier. All thanks to Captivate. You're welcome, as always. If you're about to start podcasting or are getting burnt out from all the extra work of producing one, like building a website, consider a seven-day free trial, that's right, free, with Captivate by visiting thephilamwoman.com. That's the philam, short for Filipino-American, woman.com. Or, you know, check out our show notes in the meantime, which is in the details section of each episode. Once again, you can visit thephilamwoman.com or visit the details section of this episode. You are very welcome. I mean, stories like yours are unfortunately common. And I'm glad that even just those words are coming out in a a public space like a podcast that that you have, because those need a platform. Those are the most silenced of stories. And unfortunately, that is the first sex education, if you will, that a lot of young people get. And Mm -hmm. they could normalize that. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. And the later we start sex education, the more unlearning we have to teach them because of how much gender socialization becomes uh, what they think it is, what their life is supposed to be, or trauma that they've experienced as actually, I guess this is just what's supposed to happen with my body, where I have no agency over it. And then that being layered by being reinforced by our family or friends, that is something that it was either your fault or just normal is so violent to our our development. And I'm so fortunate that I'm given a job that entrusts me with talking about these things as early as kindergarten and in a sex positive way, which Mm -hmm. is so uncommon so that they know that anything but the experience I'm describing for them is by default, non-consensual, not healthy, Mm -hmm. something you need to talk to somebody about. But we're so, but like rape culture is one that people are trying to address with refusal skills. No means no. Boys will be boys. Here, take another self-defense class. So if you don't do any of those things, then by default, it's your fault this occurred. Mm-hmm. But we need to teach them like that an only enthusiastic yes is a yes, so that anything but that is by default a no. And having that flip in the framework really changes things because it raises the bar on what we allow to happen to our body, which should only be safe, fulfilling, and pleasurable. Mm -hmm. But we have this bar of, well, 
if I didn't get raped, then he must be a good guy. <laughs> or like, um, well, how much can I, like with, you know, students that I teach, well, how much can I drink until it would be, you know, or how much could she drink until that would be uh, deemed rape? Or, you know, how much should I snort before it would be deemed as, you know, non-consensual? And I go, I want you to listen to the question you're asking me. You're asking mm. me, how much shit can you get away with instead of how do I achieve pleasure? Mm. How do I achieve mutual pleasure? And if you're trying yeah. for anything other than that, why would you be engaging in it anyway? I mean, I tell my students there are three reasons most people are, that people are having sex for procreation, for power, or for pleasure. And I'd like to think that the last one is ultimately why a high school student may be starting you know, sexual activity that early. And it's because they want to experience pleasure. They want to learn about their body in a way that makes them feel good about themselves. But many times for some young people, they're experiencing it because they were dominated. They were, someone mm. else was exuding their power on them. And the procreation thing, I mean, like that's happening a lot later on, or it's being forced as well. But mm. I want them to really focus on pleasure as the standard so that basically increase their levels of scrutiny in the people that they're interacting with and how they're interpreting what's happening to them in their relationships. But this is so opposite of not just what American education is covering with sex ed, but especially Filipino sex education, mm. which is still so riddled in draconian Catholicism, filled with shame, filled mm. with and dirtiness, derogatory terms that is still so cultural, cu culturally preventing us from real access to healthcare and also understanding how our bodies work and how it should be taken care of. So, I mean, there's so many things that I'm passionate about when it comes to Philippines, but particularly with my career intersecting with how terrible sex ed is in the Philippines, this is why I decided to work and be a part of Roots of Health because they are giving progressive sex education almost as good as the Netherlands, but in <laughs> the very backwards programming that a lot of sex education is in the Philippines and disrupting that is something is a movement I want to be a part of. Mm, girl preach. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I love that you're so passionate about this. Thinking back to my own experience back to like fifth or sixth grade, whenever we had sex education, or started those classes, it always kind of seemed like the teachers were all like, so who wants to take that? <laughs> it, nobody wants to talk about it. And it's 100% not there in our households, right? So the only way that I think the majority of us do learn is through our own personal experience, which is unfortunately, oftentimes starts out negatively. And so it's beautiful that you're so passionate about this. And you're kind of the educator for all of us because none of us got that or are getting that at home and in school. So yeah, I, I really love that. And I also really love what you said about if it's anything other than an enthusiastic, yes, it's a no, because that's also those lines for a curious teenager are, can be understandably hard to navigate. And if you don't have someone kind of drawing those hard lines, and giving, like, I love that your messages are so clear and concise. And it's kind of like, even if you only have one session or one conversation with you, you, you lay it all out for them, just the way that you have laid it all out for us mm -hmm. here. So again, I think that's so, so needed. 
I also love that you say that pleasure should be the standard, you know, it's right, you know, cause my husband and I don't plan on having kids anytime soon, at least not, not that I'm aware of. And so <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you think about sex, I have a friend who's a very, she's just very like to the book when it comes to being Christian and her perspective is like, Oh, you know, you have sex just to procreate. And it's like, well, what if I actually enjoy sex and I enjoy it a lot, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like what then? Like, mm-hmm. it, am I supposed to feel ashamed for enjoying this and let, letting this be my form of recreation, you know, or am I just going to try to reserve myself and, and wait till I'm it's time for me to have kids or whatever, you yeah. know? So I have, I have to share this. I, one time, I was, this is before my, my husband and I met, I was like dating multiple people at the same time. And I remember I was asking my, my Christian friend, I said, I said like, you know, what does, what does God think of like an orgasm? <laughs> you know? And she said, she said something like, like, if you understand Jesus's love for you and, and what he's done for you, that feeling is so much more powerful and fulfilling than an orgasm. And so from then, I really didn't know how to talk about sex with her anymore because Mm. I I knew where she stood in terms of like Mm -hmm. what sex meant to her. And it's like, okay, I, I mean, I see that for you, but I don't see it that way, unfortunately. Like I do have this relationship with God, but I don't think God would put you know, these feelings of pleasure in me, you know, just to feel guilty for having them. Mm-hmm. So whole other topic when it comes to religion, very sensitive topic. I'm sure I'll get people commenting in and saying some things, but <laughs> my truth. So, <laughs> but Justine, I love it. I, I almost kind of like want to like hear you keep talking about how passionate you are with all of this, but I know that your time is valuable and you get paid for speaking about these <laughs> things. And I just want to just once again, just emphasize how awesome and refreshing it is to hear someone such as yourself be so uh, passionate about it and so articulate and charismatic about it. Cause I could just, you know, just like how we were interviewing JL, like we could have listened to her all day. <laughs> like, I feel like, I feel like you're kind of the same <laughs> so in, <laughs> Thank you. in a different, in a different sense. So, all right. Well, anyway, I'm really excited because we are getting to my favorite part of the show, which is really to share a life lesson and a story. And for anyone that's listening to the Filipino American Women Project podcast show for the first time, our goal is to collect a bunch of life lessons told by Filipino American women tied to their stories, like a story that led to that life lesson to be able to publish a book that we can share to our, you know, overall Filipino American uh, community. So, so I really feel like we're on a good track for that. Like we've been collecting a lot of stories already, but let's go ahead and and focus on you, Justine. When I asked you what uh, life lesson you wanted to share today, you shared two things. You shared kind of two quotes. The most boundaried people are the most empathetic, which is by uh, Brene Brown. And then this one was uh, inspired by JL Umipig. So shout out to JL. This goes, my boundaries are not meant to offend you. They are meant to honor me. So I'd love for you, Justine, to share why this is the life lesson you wanted to share today. And also what aspect, what story of your life led you to these life lessons, these two life lessons that are essentially the same thing. <laughs> so I really like those two quotes. I think they're they're definitely related, just said differently, one by Brene Brown and one by an actual Brown person, JL. But nice. It's uniquely um, relevant to me because of the type of work that I'm in. It's one that is high in sensitive topics, 
stakes are extremely high and extremely emotionally taxing for me day to day. And it's not something that I really subscribed to until, you know, maybe the last three or four years or so. I was very much a, a yes person and pretty much like an enthusiastic yes person to most things because I was maybe new to New York or new to this job. I want to be friends with everyone. But because of the empathetic person that I am and almost too much. So it was hard for me to really hold a lot of other people's either traumas or stories. And especially if sometimes I couldn't do much to help them with it. And it really started to impact my ability to be a caretaker or a healer or an educator effectively. And it wasn't until I started putting these hard lines between me and the amount of time I might have to invest in a person or in a task that I started to see how much more effective of a friend uh, or an educator I could be. And that was hard for me because I was such a yes person, but it was really taking a toll on my, my own emotional well-being. And so when JL had taught us so many different ways to really create boundaries and know that it's not to say like F you to those people, but really like I can be a better friend to you if you give me the space and the time that I need away from you. So when I started to listen to that, I was just like, wow, that's really radical. And I was coming from like a, this can be offensive. How can I unlearn that as offense and really see that as a way to honor me? And I think it takes a lot for someone to do that without feeling bad. But at the same time, like, as a Filipino American woman, especially as female, we are conditioned to be caretakers all the time. Mm. And that's a double standard and one that shouldn't always be our burden, but we need to look out for number one. And I felt that I could only be good to the people around me if I actually looked out for number one first. I knew I was a better teacher when I started doing that. And it wasn't that I became unavailable to people, but my quality in the time I could spend with them when that would happen was raised. And so I'd rather be efficient with my time with them than rather, rather than just making myself available all the time. Right. And so this translated into the number of um, you know, friends I keep on Facebook, how I decide mm. to use social media and what I want to post because I know how curated my friend list is and how minimal it is. Maybe if it's like my Instagram, I keep private to, you know, just the certain types of people that I really feel safe with. Have I lost friends in real life as a result? Absolutely. But at the same time, it might have been a friend that didn't value my self care as much as I need friends to. And seeing that feeling that difference with them, sometimes means that they're not going to support that that might not be a healthier a relationship for me, or it might be a toxic mm. one. But you know, what I had said is like, I already live in a world as a woman of color, that is going to marginalize me and subject me to being reduced to a stereotype or never prioritize me. So if I can curate something like my social media to a space that I feel safe in, why wouldn't I control that? Mm. And I wanted to translate that also to my Google calendar. If I can curate what I put on that Google calendar, why wouldn't I? Because there's too much var variables when I leave the uncontrolled world that I just have to prepare and save some emotional space for to defend myself, to assert myself, where I can kind of just relax and put my feet up in the spaces that I have control over. So I, I just really like those because 
those quotes because I think it allowed me to be a better professional. It allowed me to be a better partner, a better daughter, sister, and friend in general. But it is, it seems like a radical action to have to take. But I have evidence that has proven it to be really effective. And it's one that I hope my students can slowly adopt. But it's hard for them when you're at an adolescent mostly what you care about is belonging and belonging Mm. means having as many numbers and likes associated with your name or your your handle and I want them to think beyond that but self-care is really hard to teach a young person who wants to care for others in the hope of having their membership into that kind of social capital validation yeah I am just nodding to everything that you're saying (laughs) Nani is is, yeah I need Anything you want to say? I, I'm just, yes, girl. <laughs> Go I'm ahead. also just kind of discovering exactly what you were just describing as well. Like I think I mentioned already on one of the previous podcasts that I have my personal Instagram that I've used for years and it has all my family and my friends and well, people that I thought were my friends on there. And I created this Instagram just for my blog originally when I had first opened it, but now I use it to connect with this community, do this podcast and things like that. And it's just a completely different vibe. And just like you said, if I can curate a safe space for myself, why would I go outside of that? And I think that my age group has just, I like just missed that generation where they're like obsessed with social media and all they care about Mm. essentially currency for them. And I'm I'm so glad that I feel like I just missed that because I think I would go crazy. Yeah, I agree. I made this, uh, I was writing, I was journaling about like my friends that watch me or, or me watching them watching me. Like, let's say I look at my stories and I, and I see like who's following me or who's liking my posts. And I eventually got to a place where I was like, why does, why does it matter so much to me that I know who's watching me? Because at the end of the day, they're, not really involved in my life. So what is it? Like, what what does it even matter? And so when I kind of stepped out of that complacency and was able to see that, like, wow, this is not healthy for me. It's probably not healthy for them, but it's not really healthy for me. So I need to just like, to me, likes used to be everything because I was, I had an online marketing agency, you know? So, you know, they would say, Uh, popularity would equal like profitability. But ever since I moved to the East Coast and essentially started over, like all of that, like self-promotion and feeling the need to get those likes just completely stopped. And I have come to a place where I feel like I've set healthy boundaries, um, at least on social media. So I love how Justine, you mentioned like at the very least I can curate like what I put out there online. That's one thing that I can control. I know that we have to wrap up soon. I think overall, uh, I, I feel like we had an awesome conversation about two big things, uh, sex and boundaries. <laughs> and these are things that I feel like a lot of uh, Filipino American women uh, or just Filipinas in general tend to struggle with because culturally, you know, we're told not to have sex and we're told not to have boundaries. And so I just feel like you did such an incredible job articulating everything. Like I haven't said that enough already. And there are some key things in what you said that really uh, stood out to me. And so I can't wait to edit (laughs) the show just so I can hear it again (laughs) and really apply it in my life. So I want to thank you for that. Nani, anything you wanted to add? Other than what you just said, Justine, you want to share maybe something that you would want to tell 
a teenager that's kind of struggling with this stuff but doesn't isn't aware of services like yours that could potentially help or for whatever reason is apprehensive to check mm-hmm. it out, you know, what's just like something that you would tell them Yeah, that you would want to tell them? I would want to tell them that a lot of people are having sex. A lot of people aren't experiencing intimacy. And mm-hmm. I think because the focus often in high school is about the physical act of sex, it's often occurring because of a pressure to an expectation that it's happened already or it's been forced on them. And none of those are necessarily synonymous with intimacy. And I think if you can find a way to feel truly able to be intimate with another person, it means that you have almost mastered your own pleasure centers to know what makes you feel good enough and comfortable enough to experience that type of pleasure with somebody else which doesn't necessarily even mean physical touch, but a connection that you can actually make that involves eye contact. I can't tell you the number of adolescents who are so weirded out by eye contact, which (laughs) prevents them from wanting to actually engage in intimate behaviors, but because they feel pressured to do sexual physical stuff, will do that without having intimacy. And that's preventing them from doing things safely, things uh, that are making them feel fulfilled and preventing them from doing things that feel good. And I mean, I really just wish that a young person today could first master what intimacy actually is supposed to look like for themselves, which means first knowing how your body works. And if we can get past all the barriers of sex negative education that's out there and just learn how do you know how your body can work, you're not going to settle for someone that you can't look in the eye and can't give you the same level of pleasure, if not more, that you could give to yourself. But if you can't even look them in the eye, that's not the right person to be having any type of sexual activity with. But they're so into having to check off that box that I have done this act mm-hmm. so that I can call myself no longer a virgin. I mean, to do a whole lesson on how like even the vir- word virgin is so heterosexist and honestly inapplicable because of how people define it as purely penetrative. And then Mm. what does that mean for lesbians? Uh, Mm. What does that mean if it's not involving, you know, a vulva, then we have a whole bunch of virgins out there that are actually having a lot of penetrative sex in some way. So, I mean, there's just so many things that are still backwards that are still applicable in 2019. And I want them to first understand, do you even know what intimacy means? And what are the ways you can achieve that? And that will help them to really scrutinize the kind of people that they surround themselves with, but then also understand how their body works first. And if we can master intimacy, we're going to overhaul have a lot more of an empathetic sexual landscape for our young people and, you know, our, our adults for sure. So I would say first figure out what intimacy is and use that as a metric for, for safety, fulfillment and pleasure in the people you surround yourselves around, especially ones that you might want to be romantic with or sexually involved with. There are a ton of awesome resources that are out there that I think are underutilized. If you're a middle school student listening to this podcast, holla. And also, <laughs> great that you're already owning your you know, Filipina identity and you're listening to this, but amaze.org. It is an awesome organization that is doing a lot of video education that in such an accessible way through like two to four minute cartoons about the most sex positive 
comprehensive sex education you'll ever, you know, see um, that's available out there. And, you know, depending on where you are in, in the U.S., there are so many t- um, teen apps that are there to give you a lot of information about how your body works. That's not just Googling it and it's going to lead you to a porn site. If you're in New York City, Mount Sinai Adolescent Health Center provides free reproductive health care for you and without parental consent. And there are some really progressive states that are providing those types of services and that are totally within the confines of what's legal as an adolescent. But exercise your reproductive rights because they actually do exist. And there are a lot of people like myself that care about your sexual health and want to give you experiences that are ones with people that will give you safety, fulfillment, and pleasure. That's what you're deserving of. That's what you should be getting. And if anything, reach out to me, justinefonte.org, and I'll send you in the right direction. So there you have it with Justine Fonte. And just like what she said, you deserve intimacy and pleasure. And she provided a ton of resources for you to learn how to even get started. Justine, I want to thank you so much for your time and your passion and your wise words of sexual wisdom. <laughs> uh, Nani, I want to thank I want to thank you as well for being on the show as always. And for our listeners, if this resonated with you in any way, feel free to check out the show notes to see how you can get a hold of us or get a hold of Justine. And we look forward to seeing you at the next episode. So, all right, ladies, I will talk to you all again soon, hopefully in the future, hopefully sooner. But thank you both so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Donnie. You're welcome. Bye.